Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral, a show about the effects of COVID-19 on small businesses and the humans that run them. I'm Grant LeBeau, your host and owner of Rickaroons, a coconut energy bar company in San Diego. Now, 2020 was going to be our year, the one that made the juice worth the squeeze of the last six years, the one where our bars finally made their way to the shelves at Costco and onto the checkout counter of every juice bar and coffee shop up the West Coast. And then, COVID. So instead of triple-digit growth, podcast. This show is designed to share the stories of other small business owners in all their glory, including and even focusing on the negatives, talking through the thorough destruction of whatever we small business owners had planned for 2020, the associated stresses, and what we are doing to cope and adjust. Because everything is not great, but at least we're in this together. So with that, let's get to the good stuff, starting with a fun fact. Yay! For today's fun fact, we have a fun subject around a seemingly fun acronym, WFH, Work From Home. Fewer than 10% of Manhattan employees are back at work. This, of course, is bad news for all the restaurant owners in New York City's famous business district who are stuck paying a lease predicated on the pre-COVID foot traffic of busy humans with lots of disposable income, not the tumbleweeds currently in charge. More WFH, Google is reacting to a resurgence of COVID cases by announcing its roughly 200,000 employees will remain remote at least until July 2021, following in the similar footsteps of Facebook and Twitter who have already announced more permanent changes. Lastly, the U.S. dollar hit a two-year low, which means investors have less confidence in the U.S. economy than they do in other countries. And that is a great segue into our facts and figures. As context for the interview and to encapsulate the struggles of the moment, here are some stats around our battle against COVID and unemployment as of July 28, 2020. The last week has seen the world top 16.8 million total cases of COVID, with 5.7 million active cases. Now, here's the crazy part. 37% of the world's COVID cases are in the U.S., in spite of us having only 4% of the world's population. In July, we saw the daily death rate in the U.S. drop into the 500s, the lowest point since March. Well, we're back, up to nearly 1,000 deaths per day, and trending in the wrong direction. A perverted upside to having so many cases, though, is treatment is improving, and thus so too is the survivability rate, particularly here in the U.S. That said, total COVID-related fatalities surpassed 150,000 this week. Fully five months into this and still no national policies, it's sadly not a surprise that Americans are still seeing such high numbers and therefore are officially unwelcome in Europe and the vast majority of countries around the world. On to economic stats. Although weekly unemployment filings are still topping the 1 million mark, something we had never before done prior to COVID, total unemployment is continuing to drop, nationally down to 10.2%. The number of full-time employees in the U.S. is trending positively, up to 121 million, still though 8 million shy of where we were in February. Friend of the show Dow Jones continues to see positive movement, finishing the day at 26,584 and the S&P closing at 3,329. Just for some context, which we love to provide, that means the major stock market indices are down only 5 to 10% on the year, in spite of massive unemployment, 
worse than literally any other time since the Great Depression. And not that it's really of any solace to the unemployed or the sick, but I guess at least Wall Street is optimistic that we will bounce back quickly once, and this is sort of an if at this point, we truly get a grip on COVID. And on that pessimistic note, let's go ahead and move on to something slightly more uplifting, the interview. My guest today is Caroline Cotto of Renewal Mill. Her unconventional path has taken her from White House intern for Michelle Obama's Child Obesity Initiative to United Nations World Food Program assistant in Cambodia to permaculture farmer in Italy. She's currently the chief operating officer of Renewal Mill, a venture-backed startup creating a new circular economy of food by upcycling the byproducts of food manufacturing into ingredients. Put differently, Renewal Mill takes the parts from food production that would have been thrown away and instead turns them into delicious and nutritious commercial-ready products, thus positively impacting the world of food waste and its associated carbon emissions. Prior to Renewal Mill, Caroline helped incubate businesses along the food supply chain at Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator and ran the global women's diversity program at tech company HubSpot. She formerly served as a Fulbright Fellow in Taiwan and now serves as the inaugural board president of the Upcycled Food Association, a collection of businesses with similar goals of helping solve climate change via the reduction of food waste. Basically, Caroline is an absolute boss whose business is going to help save us from climate change and hopefully make her lots of money along the way. Caroline, thanks so much for being here. So great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, that man, that intro is is lengthy. I cannot believe how much you have accomplished already. It's uh, it's been a winding path for sure, but I'm I'm happy to be where I am now. Well, we're going to do kind of a Tarantino-esque move here and start with the the end with your with your current endeavor and basically i'm going to ask you to describe the the broader industry of of upcycling and then we'll go back and lay the groundwork so upcycling is this new category of food that is trying to fight climate change and reduce global food waste by making sure that we're putting all food to its best and highest use which is feeding people so we basically take in our case, we take byproducts from food manufacturing and we elevate them to the highest level um, as far as turning them into a flour-based product that you can use um, straight out of the bag or in your favorite baked good. Um, but upcycling can be done at, along all parts of the food supply chain. So whether or not that's, that's fruits and vegetables left on the farm that are maybe just a little bit off spec um, but are perfectly nutritious, or if that's taking the, the spent grain from beer brewing, um, and, and eating that as well. So um, ultimately, we're just trying to make sure that nothing goes to waste. Um, but it's different than recycling, because with recycling, you need to break down something into its component parts and then put it into something new. But with upcycling, you can just take it as it is and um, raise it to a higher level. So you're essentially just taking the remains of something that, that would have been sort of cast aside and thrown away and finding a... a a purpose for it to con to continue its use in in the production chain. That's exactly right. Yep. So we're we're just taking it as it is and 
um, putting it back into a, a circular food system. So I would imagine that your long and winding path probably had a lot to do with preparing you for this role. Can you, I don't, we don't have 10 hours for you to go over every single uh, amazing accomplishment that I just uh, briefly went over, but uh, kind of hit on some of the more important points or, or the points that you think were most relevant in getting you to be the COO of, of, an, of a company that's doing uh, so much to uh, both fight climate change and also be a successful CPG company? Yeah, food has definitely been the thread for me that's connected connected my entire path. It's the one thing that I've loved for as long as I can remember. Um, grew up in the food industry. My parents owned an ice cream store. I went to Georgetown with the intention of studying health and nutrition. Um, and when I went to the sort of career office there, I was like, I want to work in food. And they were like, so you want to be a consultant or an investment banker? And I was like, no, I want to work in food. And they were like, yeah, consulting or investment banking. <laughs> so it very much set me on this journey of forging my own path, um, kind of cut my teeth on food banks and nutrition in Washington, D.C., and just really saw firsthand the, the benefits of fresh food and the link to health. Um, spent some time kind of studying the opposite side of that coin with child malnutrition. And then after doing a number of years in research and academia uh, on, on this topic, kind of made a complete pivot and was like, you know, maybe I should just try out tech. Um, so I worked for HubSpot, which gave me, a, I would not be able to do the job I'm doing today without that foundation. Um, it just really helped me see how do you take a company from start startup stage to growth stage to ultimately they IPO'd um, and taught me everything I know about marketing and PR, which is able to, to how I run my business today. Um, but ultimately, you know, inbound marketing is great. It's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. Food is still really what gets me out of bed. So I decided to, to make a left turn pivot back into food, um, went all the way back to the farm level to kind of see what that looks like on the ground. And then sort of started scaling back out and uh, went to the, the food supply chain level, saw people kind of working at different stages along that, and then honed in on, wow, we're really wasting food at every single part of this supply chain, but here's a little piece that I can really dig in and work on because I wanna affect climate change and food waste reduction is the number one thing we can do to reduce climate change at the moment, more than reducing the number of cars that are driven or flying, um, it's, it's food waste reduction. Do you have any stats by chance about what impact could be made by better utilizing all components of, of food in, in, the, in the production cycle? Yeah, so the, the general statistics are that 30% of food is wasted globally. And in the US, that's about 40%. Um, and of then course. if food waste were its own country, it, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind only China and the U.S. So definitely a lot of work to be done uh, to, to reduce those, those volumes. Um, and Project Drawdown has done a lot of research on like sort of ranking what are the most effective solutions to climate change. And this year they said if we want to prevent two degrees of global warming, um, food waste reduction is top of that list, closely followed by eating a plant-based diet. Wow. Those numbers are astounding. That would, that would be the third. Wow. 
the third most producing country of greenhouse gases could be basically wiped off the planet just by being more efficient in the way that we produce things. And what I love about upcycling is that it's something that as more technology and innovation basically goes into that uh, industry or, or concept, the more things become economically driven as well, which is what I think every, not, I don't want to ever want to say everyone because that's never gonna be the case, but you're going to be able to get buy-in it's going to be an apolitical issue. You're going to be able to get buy-in from from both sides of the aisle if you have something that is going to be a, a, an economic winner, is economically viable, and then is also, of course, uh, doing do, ma- making big leaps and bounds in towards solving the, the the climate change crisis. Yeah, I like to joke that upcycling is not a new con- like it's not a new concept. Your grandma was upcycling, you know, back in the Great Depression because she had to. You know, they're using everything that you bought was essential. And we've just gotten to this place in this country and across the world where we're allowed to be lazy because we can. Like we we there's no like you're saying economic incentive to to find a solution. And we're just starting to see people realizing this environmental incentive or they're being forced to by laws like, um, you know, compost organic waste bans that are going into effect. And they're like, Oh shit, now we need to do something with this. Um, and yeah, they're seeing the, the large scale effects of climate change, particularly on vulnerable populations. Um, and now have to backpedal and kind of be like, we have to be, we have to be more efficient in, in food production. So your, your Pepsi's, your Nestle's, you know, the, your, your household names, Sadly, I believe it is a lot to expect of those companies to do anything out of the goodness of their hearts because they have this fiduciary responsibility to basically maximize profits for their shareholders, right? And so if the technology isn't there or and then the, the willpower isn't there to create that technology, then they're going to continue to do things the way that things were always done. And as as there becomes a larger movement and there is public backing and they put more money into things like developing whatever technologies or developing products even that might not have even existed prior, they're able to sort of create a a niche or to create products out of those, um, out of those otherwise cast off ingredients. Right. And so I think it's like a sign of the kind of a sign of the times that companies are even willing to be able to do that and is honestly refreshing, I think, to to hear that there that there is a a commercial hope towards solving climate change. And obviously it would only be a component, but just that we don't have to rely on government intervention. It is, and it seems like that's something that you're you're focusing on, and you're able to bring to the table because of your your history of experiences. Yeah, definitely. I think we see these large Fortune 500 food companies responding to consumer demand, and it's really what it takes to sort of poke these bears. Um, and so consumers are demanding that the companies they source from are sustainable and are doing the right thing from an environmental perspective. Um, and they're willing to put more money behind it. Um, and we, we see them ranking those sort of sustainability claims higher than things like organic and, and non-GMO, um, which is ultimately moving moving the the needle for these large food companies to to find better solutions. That's great when the financials align with the the mission 
And I think it's is something that uh, is super important if you want to get those those big gigantic uh, megalith companies to to move towards doing something that's that's positive for for the world. Let's go ahead and move to sort of uh, your company specifically now. So Renewal Mill, I guess I guess the easiest way would be to describe some of the products that you offer. Sure. So Renewal Mill is a ingredients company at heart. So we're taking the uh, the byproducts of food manufacturing, starting with the soybean pulp leftover when you make soy milk, and it's called Okara. We dehydrate it and mill it into a high fiber, high protein, gluten free flour. Um, it's super neutral in flavor and color, so it looks very similar to an all purpose. And we sell that as an ingredient to other food producers, um, but we also use it in some of our own CPG products. So right now we have um, the Okara for retail. We have a one-to-one baking flour that's just a little bit more friendly for the home cook. And we have a just add oil and water dark chocolate brownie mix that features the Okara and a vegan soft baked Okara chocolate chip cookie. Those sound like at least the last two things that are definitely going to be coming into my house in the next, let's see, how, how quick is shipping? <laughs> I think it'll be in my house in the Under next two, two days. To, we'll, get, yeah. we'll hook you up. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, because I, I have people in, in my circle who are, are gluten-free and certainly appreciate dark chocolate. So that sounds like a, a, a no-brainer. So... A product like, or, or I should say a, a company like Renewal Mill, it sounds like is something that would be super appetizing to the world of venture because it's something that is sort of untapped. Specific, like I've, I've never heard of anyone using Okara before. Is that just my own ignorance or is it actually just something that, that is kind of just starting to, to come to fruition? So okara is actually a traditional East Asian ingredient. Um, it's been used for centuries in countries like Japan, where if you made soy milk at home, you would never throw away that soybean pulp. You would use it in savory dishes like okonomiyaki or saute with vegetables um, or, or make it into a dessert. But in the U.S., um, it's a relatively unknown ingredient. The word itself, okara, is a Japanese word. So o is kind of an honorific and kara means husk. So it vaguely means like honoring the husk or honoring the whole bean. Um, But it definitely is something that is of interest to sort of venture because we're turning waste into revenue in a way that hasn't been done before. Um, And and trying to, to create more value, sort of mining the food system for where this value is being lost. But we are um, also trying to raise awareness about this particular ingredient, Okara. It was already an FDA, USDA recognized ingredient, and it had traditionally been sold in its wet form in the grocery store, so like in the refrigerated section. Um, But we're kind of the first ones doing it as a a powder or flour. And actually, a large percentage of our customer base online at the moment comes from um, Japanese origins, so Hmm. Japanese Americans who are are already familiar with how it performs. Um, And then... On the other side, we do we do a lot of education about it's, uh, how to use it in, in different applications for other folks. I was I was just going to say that's great that you have a kind of a, a core group of people who are already educated about the subject, and I'm sure that they're probably they'll remain a staple of your of your consumer uh, demographic. And although, of course, the the goal as you grow a company is to always expand well beyond just your initial core group. So the reason why I brought up 
the the VC world is because I think that as you go as you find a a new use for a product and and you are the one who has to sort of develop that technology it's not something that is free it's not something that you can usually do out of your own kitchen you're you're not necessarily going to be like a, a farmer's market origin company because you you need the tooling in order to make all of that come to come to life so true or false you have raised venture funds true and how many rounds We've raised a seed round and we're currently doing some bridge financing. Okay. Is that bridge financing in any way? Ooh, I'm going to get ahead of myself here. Is any way related to the fact that COVID has kind of put a pause on A little bit, yeah. We were actually raising before COVID, but it has uh, definitely thrown a wrench in that. So (laughs) we put it on the back burner for a bit, but we're now uh, getting, getting ramped up again. Okay, so I'll just ask the question, and then you can always tell me if you don't want to answer it. But what were the financial goals of 2020 pre-COVID? We were really trying to scale our CPG side of our business to be a million-dollar business um, because that's at the point where we see a lot of CPG investors become really interested is when you're at a million-dollar run rate. So that was our, that's our moonshot goal for the year is to, to get there. Um, we at started 2020 with um, like, I would say one and a half retail products and quickly scaled up um, using the fancy food show in January as sort of one launch point for our one-to-one baking flour. And then we were planning to use Expo West in March to officially launch our brownie mix and kind of a, officially launch us into this baking mix category for our CPG SKUs. Um, and as we kind of built out what that look will look like on shelves. Um, and that all, all was up in flames uh, yes. with COVID. So. Oh, don't, don't you worry. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We, we love looking at the flames on this show. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're really trying to, the, the sales cycle for B2B ingredients is, is quite long. Um, especially if, as you look to these larger food companies, by the time that they understand what you do, they test your ingredient, they go through the food safety evaluation, and they actually put it in a product, it can be up to two to three years. Um, and so we created all of these CPG products to sort of demonstrate our ingredients in the market and increase the demand and the education around these upcycled ingredients as we sort of nurture these longer term sales. Oh, genius. I love it when I have guests on the show who explain something and I'm just like, yes, that is a hundred percent the way to do it. Like it just totally <laughs> makes sense. Of course, if you have a new product and you it's, you're going to have a hard time selling this new, okay, what, what is Okara, right? I mean, people are getting pitched things all the time. So if you want to sell to, if you want to go B2B, meaning you're taking your ingredients and you're selling it on the back end to those big entrenched players, because that's one way to make a to hit home runs is to sell to those big companies, right? Yes, you can do you can you can sell online. That's great. But if you are used in some leading product offered by a PepsiCo or a Nestle company or something, well, now all of a sudden you're doing five million, ten million a year, something in that ballpark, just because based off that one customer. So of course that would be something that you would build an infrastructure around. But in order to convince them that your product is usable, you have to then create sort of a demand for it and show that, cons- that it's something that consumers are going to be into. 
Yeah, I think we're targeting those large companies, not, I mean, making money is great, but also because they use large volumes. And that's really what we're trying to do is, you know, make a huge dent in this food waste problem. And so who's going to take the largest volume? Well, it's these large companies that right. have huge distribution. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where, why we're targeting them. And also we kept going to all these trade shows and people were like, so Okara, cool. What does it taste like? And you're like, well, we have a cookie. Try <laughs> <Nothing>. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, oh, this just tastes like a cookie. And you're like, exactly. That's exactly the point. It just <laughs> tastes like a cookie. This only tastes like a delicious melt in your mouth chocolate chip cookie. Right. Yeah. They're like, I can't taste it. You're like, yeah, because it's just nutrition and we're just adding it and it tastes like all purpose. So. Yeah. I just, I, I love and I'm so envious of your company in that every time, every dollar you make is like, yes, it's good for, for you and your investors and your bottom line. And then it's also good for you and your investors in a much larger, larger, much larger sense in that it's good for the world. If you, if someone is using your product, then that is reducing waste inherently. That's, that's the goal for sure. That is the goal. Definitely. Okay. So we're going to wrap up the pre-COVID set here uh, with just a, a couple quantitative questions. One, how many employees do you have? We have currently two full-time employees and one part-time employee and a number of contractors. And did you lose any employees along the way in the last few months? We've been lucky enough to be able to, to scale everyone down to keep them all on board. Fantastic. And how many years ago did Renewal Mill start? Uh, Renault Mill was founded in 2016, and we started selling our products in 2018. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, we're going to go on to, to move on to the mid-COVID set. But of course, as always, before we do that, and by as always, I mean the last few shows here, as always, we're going to move on to the guest unsponsor segment. So an unsponsor is an awesome company who produces an awesome product and, of course, is run by awesome people but more likely than not doesn't have the funds to do a ton of advertising on shows with 14s of followers like us. So who is your unsponsor of the show? Who is the show not brought to you by? This show is not brought to you by Ugly Pickle Co., who, which is a San Francisco-based uh, fellow upcycling company that takes ugly produce and transforms that into delicious pickles and spreads. It's run by a couple named Kayla and David. They are absolutely fantastic humans doing amazing work. Uh, started at the San Francisco Ferry Building Farmers Market and are quickly expanding. So they're, they'll be on shelves near you very soon, I'm sure. I love it. I, I mean, any company that starts at a farmer's market, uh, obviously, is, is after my own heart here. So, all right. So eat ugly pickle dot com is the place to find ugly pickle co or coming soon to a shelf near you i highly recommend their carrot top chimmy it's delicious carrot top chimmy all right well if my sister's listening i hope she's not because i'm definitely going to buy that for her for her birthday she's a huge <laughs> uh pickle fan and her birthday is right around the corner so i am so tempted to just go on my computer literally in the middle of this interview and just buy it right now so i don't forget because it sounds amazing but i'll come back Okay, moving on to the bulk of the show here, why we're here, and that is to talk about how COVID has affected your business. So you mentioned earlier that you had a goal of, of a million dollar run rate, meaning that you are uh, over the course of a year or averaging, I guess that would be 80 plus thousand a month. 
which is is that's substantial that's sizable i mean that's uh you know thousands and thousands of online orders a month or a couple maybe even just one gigantic uh b2b company but so how did you plan on getting there before covid hit so as I mentioned, we have these CPG products. Our strategy before COVID was largely food service based. So we were selling our cookies as office snacks in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, expanding that to national distribution through snack distributors. And um, we, were, we were in retail in the Bay Area in a very limited capacity, looking to um, do some expansion there, potentially bringing on a broker for retail expansion. And then on the B2B side, um, as I said, this it's a long cycle. We've been nurturing these customers for about 18 months, and we're expecting products to start appearing on shelves in um, the fall of 2020, early 2021. And so really just getting those over the edge and supplementing that with partnerships with um, small emerging food brands that can kind of more nimbly add ingredients to their, their products. So I want to hit on two of those specifically. One, and, and this is sort of a, a, a want, want, but <laughs> only because I, if in my personal experience, have uh, have seen something very, very similar, which is, or I, I kind of know the answer to this question, but how has the snack distribution uh, uh, industry gone over the course of the last three to four months? Well, Grant, it uh, <laughs> disappeared overnight, so... <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. I like basic, like we woke up on March 12th or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, oh, okay. All orders canceled forever. Forever, forever. Yeah. Like, will you ever work in an office again? Probably not. I don't know. The largest food company or the largest tech companies here in the Bay have sort of officially made their workforce remote. They're giving up their office space. Um, Yeah. So yeah, really hard to say. It was an amazing channel before. It was yeah. really and, a great engine to sort of hit our target customer because most of the people that these snacks were going to are eco-conscious millennials who work at tech companies. Um, but yeah, it's it's now it's now gone. For now. And and uh, real quick, how does the price point on your on your flour compare to uh, a, a traditional standard all-purpose flour? Yeah. So. I think a misconception with upcycled ingredients is that they're going to be cheap or free. Um, They are definitely lower cost because we're getting a low cost input. So we can be price competitive with conventional flours, but it is still an organic non-GMO premium ingredient. Um, So I would say it's, it's priced the same as sort of an organic wheat flour and organic coconut flour. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely going to be less expensive than something like an almond flour um, but definitely not as cheap as just a traditional all-purpose. I mean, that that's honestly still a, a lot better than what I thought you were going to say, just because I, I think that in upcycling, it there's usually a reason why it wasn't being utilized in the past. And I think that that reason is if it were super easy to do and cheap to do, then it would have already been done. So usually it's either complex or it, there's a lot of, you know, monetary investment that needs to go into developing whatever technology is to fully utilize um, the the raw the ingredient components back to the offices I, I want to fully explain just like briefly to our listeners just how great of an industry that was to be in 
Um, because if you could sell your, let's see, you, usually, so if you're selling a product on a shelf in Whole Foods, you need that value proposition to make sense to tens of people a day in order to get hundreds or thousands of sales in a, in a month or in, or in a year. And when you think about a product selling at, at you know, somewhere like Whole Foods, which I'll use as, as an example, only because everyone knows it, that product, if you're selling like 100, 200 units a month, that's really good, right? But when you think of 100 units at, let's say you're making $3, $4. Okay, so you, you do all this work at one store and you're making like two, three, four hundred $400 a month. You really need a ton of stores to be bringing you on. And then you need to be doing tons of follow-ups at those stores. And you need to be making sure that customers are aware of your product and that you're getting placement and that you're doing demos. And there's just a ton of ongoing work. If you are selling at an at a at a at a Google campus or a Facebook campus or whatever, you need that value proposition to make sense to one person, and that is like the office manager or or whatever position that is, who is in charge. And basically, if if they look at it and go, "This product is good. I think my people are going to like it. Send me ten of them. Yep, people like them. Okay, great. Now send me a pallet of them. Right." And send me a pallet of them every two months for for in perpetuity. You just by selling to one person accomplished essentially what it's like to be in Whole Foods nationwide, or at least in a, in a region. So it is a huge, huge opportunity that not a lot of people think about. And I think we can pretty much all thank Google for having created that by being the first big company to say, hey employees we pay you so much money we never want you to leave we want you to we want to incentivize you to stay here forever so here are all of these free delicious tasty products that maybe you wouldn't even be able to get elsewhere so that is and because you're not the first person to, to tell me this and and i we certainly experienced the exact same thing a huge component of our of our forecasted growth in 2020 was going after those those tech offices mm-hmm. so that's pretty much gone and I, I, you know, you, you, you said that it happened pretty much overnight. That's really not that hyperbolic because things like really uh, came crumbling down quickly. Obviously, you know, March 12th or whatever was like, Hey, everyone's going to go work from home. Maybe two weeks for uh, three weeks, a month, whatever. We're going to see how this goes. But over the course of that next month ish, it became abundantly clear that those offices are closed for a long time. And now it seems like every day you're hearing about, uh, you know, company a, X, Y, or Z giving up their leases and significantly downsizing their Silicon Valley footprint, which means there's no single, single place to send that product to. So with that product or with that all being gone, how did that affect your current run rate moving back to, to March, April, May? Yeah, March was rough. Um, I think it, you know, it bottomed out. We were like, okay, gotta pivot fast, like build this plane in a different direction. Let's go now. Um, so yeah, really had to figure out um, 
how do we get onto shelves, whether they're retail shelves or virtual shelves, um, very quickly? <laughs> how yeah. do we uh, kind of yeah take all of the business that we had projected from uh, from food service and from snack distribution and try to find alternative outlets for that um, and do it essentially overnight in the same way that the the sales had had gone away overnight. Um, and then obviously on the B2B side, people were kind of pausing innovation because there was so much uncertainty in this time. Like, uh, we don't know if we're going to be a company in three months. Why would we invest in a new product that's not going to launch until next year? And so that that is, we are starting to see that pick back up, which is exciting, but it's definitely been like delayed a little bit um, that's great. down the road. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so we kind of just started going as fast as we possibly could to get onto these e-commerce platforms. I think if you were not already on a retail shelf, it's really hard to get someone to look at your product because all of the buyers were stopping product reviews as there was all these people doing panic buying. So they're just trying to stock their shelves with what already they had in, in store. They're like, we, we don't have time to onboard anyone new. Um, and so we found some outlets with what, what we like to call affinity platforms. So other upcycling food companies like Imperfect Foods and Misfits Market were, were really kind and helped helped out some other um, of the upcycling food companies like us to get into their produce boxes or their um, sort of online grocery marketplaces and get out to customers. And then um, we were also helped by the fact that people were panic buying flour. And so the baking aisles were kind of decimated and we could kind of just edge in there in a way that some of the other other snack companies couldn't and be like, hey, we actually have flour. It, it might not be the same flour that you were exactly looking for, but why don't you give it a shot? Um, or, or same with brownie mix um, and, and get some people to sort of try it just because there was nothing else. And they're like, yeah, might, might as well give it a shot. <laughs> right. Yeah. If, if there are issues in the supply chain, then that's going to provide an opportunity for someone who's ready to slide right in. I can 100% relate to having a product that you think is, is would be perfect at place X. And then you think things are moving in the right direction and then COVID hits and then buyers are like, nope, uh, we'll see you in six to 12 months, my friend, <laughs> because we need to sell Quaker Oats and Cliff Bar and like basically household staple items that people are really familiar with. Because in this, in I think you hit the nail on the head with the, the term uncertainty, people they want certainty, right? I mean, that's that's especially like now more than ever. And so it, I think it's it's a scary proposition to be running out of those staples when you don't know what like it's like the one of the few things you think you can control right absolutely so. i was like people yeah the the data around what people are buying when they think the world is ending is hilarious to me just like they go back to like oreos and like rice aroni my parents are health conscious and i was back home with them this week and <laughs> their pantry is full of like spam like, what do you oh think is gosh. happening? Like, uh, I don't know. But yeah, all of these like legacy brands, people are just like world ending need Twizzlers. Like, I don't I, I feel like I feel like spam was was last most popular when when there was like the Cold War and people had like nuclear bunkers and and were stocking up on food that would just never, ever expire. And so I wonder if your parents are just uh regressing back to that state in life where it's like well this is the next closest thing to the end of the world so, i know i'm like this bam. is not yeah 
<laughs> it's it's funny. I was like, this has enough sodium to kill you all. So, right, it's going to kill you before the COVID <laughs> does. So you said that you've moved a big focus of yours to direct to consumer online. Have you seen any sort of? Or I would assume the answer is yes. But how much of an uptick have you seen in online sales? Maybe represented in you don't need to share revenue specifically, but maybe just as a percentage. And then, well, I guess we can just start there. Let's just start there. <laughs> yeah. So we, we had a website before that had product on it. Um, but it was very much just like, if someone buys once a week, great. Like that's not our focus. Um, so we, and it was being run on Squarespace. So we switched it to Shopify to sort of streamline things, which was a, a whole process. And we've seen sales go up seven X. Um, on the website for for that. We also had our products up on Amazon starting in January, just kind of as a, let's explore what this looks like. We were doing it all wrong, like selling single packs and, you know, not definitely not doing it correctly. So we've pivoted as well and been like, okay, let's actually have an Amazon strategy. Let's get all our products up on Amazon. Let's make sure we're offering multi-packs and um, kind of, you know, meeting people where they are as far as their buying habits on this platform. And we've also seen that go up 5x. Wow. And did you see an uptick at all in the beginning that has plateaued or is, have you seen continued growth there? Um, the, the baking aisle stuff that we have seen where people were at home 100% of the time, really like making sourdough, making all of these sort of banana bread recipes they had pulled up from the internet. Um, that has plateaued a little bit just as the weather has gotten better and people are kind of spending a little bit more time outside. Um, but we're, we're, we are still seeing continued growth on e-commerce and we do think that's the continued trend as far as people continuing to purchase through online grocery and, and Amazon moving forward. Yeah, good. That's good to hear because I know that some some companies and we certainly experienced something somewhat similar to this is that March was our best online month ever. And then April was second best and May like, but there's other months have continued to be good relative to pre COVID, but they're certainly not what they were in March and April. Those months were crazy for online sales. Yeah. Yeah. I think April was a little bit, we were like, okay, get your feet under you. What are we doing? And then, um, May and June have been, have been better for us. Um, and July I think is when we've seen folks really spending a lot more time outside and, and not in the kitchen as much. Um, mm -hmm. but we have seen sort of snacks still going up <laughs> as people are on the go. They now need uh, ready to eat snacks. Right. So maybe you're selling more of your pre-made cookies. Exactly. As opposed to the, the flower. So you mentioned that buyers are perhaps starting to be as we, as we, as the new normal becomes more and more clear as to like what that is, or yeah, we, we just get used to this is our new existence. Are buyers starting to come back to you and being willing to take a chance on something new? They are. Yeah. Um, it's slow, slow going. I'd say it's, it's the buyers for more innovative platforms like good eggs or thrive market are the ones that are kind of being a little bit more quick, quick to adapt. Um, the buyers for traditional retail are still, um, still pretty closed. I think they're looking towards the fall as really the, the time to push the gas pedal there. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
yeah, we are seeing some some forward movement, which gives me hope because it did feel for a time there like no nothing new will ever be on shelves again. This is we have what we have and see you in 2024. Yeah. I'm I'm imagining one of those little uh like those infographics of the of the food chain uh <laughs> of of like the giant fish eating the like the medium-sized fish eating the small fish eating the tiny fish. And I feel like as we think about who is able to start incorporating or or bringing on who's willing to experiment with a new product first it's going to be the the like the tiny fish is, is the the individual online consumer and mm-hmm. then next would be like the in-store consumer and then next would be probably the online wholesale buyer and then like last la- you know last to the feeding frenzy is going to be the in-store wholesale buyer right the person who's the, the the buyer at whole foods who's deciding whether or not this product makes it onto the shelf yeah and i think it i can't reiterate enough how hard it has been to launch a product that requires education during this time so even if you get the buyer to be like yes i'm gonna bring you on shelf we can't do demos we can't have a shelf talker we can't educate the staff in person we can't go into the store to like educate consumers and do any sort of merchandising so you're basically stuck with social media marketing, which is extremely expensive and not something that's really in our budget as a small company. And you're left with trying to direct someone on the shelf at Whole Foods to your website to learn more. So they like pick up your product. You're like, okay, you either have to scan a QR code or you have to like go to our website or Instagram to like learn what we're doing. And you have to remember that these people are terrified in the grocery store. They're just trying to run in grab their stuff and get out as fast as possible. So product discovery is not happening uh, on the consumer side. So it's a very challenging time. Like even if you get in, you're like, yes, we did it. Like we just got into UNFI for distribution. We're like, yes. But like getting it into someone's pantry is a whole nother, whole nother game. Right. UNFI being essentially the, the Yankees of food distribution but getting into UNFI being more like getting into getting drafted by the Yankees and being in single A ball. And then there's a long way to go before you really make it to the pros as one of their staple successful items. That's kind of ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about the, the difficulty in edifying the, the, the consumer base out there because it, without knowledge of what the product is, people aren't going to buy it. But of course, if anyone, for anyone who's been to a grocery store in the last three months, you, the last thing you want to do is be there. You want to just move things along as quick as humanly possible, right? So the last thing you want to do is like stand in an aisle and scan the QR code. So yeah, I, I can just imagine what a nightmare that is right now for you trying to, to create an educated consumer, consumer base to buy your product. Yeah, especially because the buyers, sometimes they're like, well, we have a brownie mix. Like, I'm sure yours is good, but Okara, we've never heard of that. That sounds exciting. So they they want to bring that skew on, which is great. And we want them to, but also I would say 99% of people have read that as okra flower in the first look, just because your brain does a weird trick on you where you're like, oh, I don't need that middle letter. Um, very different product, okra flower versus okara flower. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, and you know, all of these health benefits that we're trying to convey um, for, and for both the planet and for the, the person buying it 
are very hard to convey in, in two seconds. So you talk about needing to educate your, the, 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 I guess just honestly, the general public as to what okara is in that it is not okra, a disgusting vegetable, but actually a tasteless and very multifunction or all purpose uh, flower replacement. So I think that's a great way to segue to your other current venture, because I can just imagine you having a, a eventually creating a whole segment in a grocery store with all sorts of uh, like-minded products. So with that, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? I know you're the inaugural president of this organization. Tell us about the organization and, and what its mission is. Yes. Yeah, so um, last October, a bunch of upcycling companies banded together to form the Upcycled Food Association for this exact purpose of educating not only the consumers, but also um, the retail buyers and the larger food companies and, and the industry as a whole about what we're doing um, and the benefits of upcycling. So our goal is to launch a upcycled product certification so that it would be very clear for the consumer in the aisle to say, oh, this is upcycled. I know what that means. I know that my dollar is now going to help fight climate change and reduce food waste. The same way that you have a non-GMO seal or an organic seal or a kosher seal, um, we want to do the same thing for upcycling. So that's in the works. The, the first step was to create a formal definition of upcycled food because it hadn't been done before. And so we spent um, the, the sort of early winter and um, early spring creating that definition in partnership with a bunch of organizations, including uh, NRDC and WWF and um, Harvard and Drexel Universities and formally released a upcycled food definition that's being used as the cornerstone of this, this product certification. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so I, I guess I, what I'm envisioning moving forward is that eventually in the way that some, some grocery stores will have a gluten-free section or a kosher section or, or, or you know, various maybe, um, you know, traditional ethnic food in one place or another, you can have an upcycled section that will then only re will require kind of a, an overview of education. Um, and then once once customers become aware of what upcycling is, then they're in that section and then there's less individual education required on the part of your product. That's our dream is to have sort of, you know, dedicated end caps, dedicated section with um, upcycled food. You can really eat upcycled every meal of the day if you try hard enough. It's not it's not that hard. There's a lot of companies doing beverages. They're doing snacks. They're doing desserts. They're doing meats. So it's yeah, yeah. You can you can really fill your plate with upcycled goodness. Yeah, exciting times. Uh, as soon as we can get there and get some some uh, consumer awareness and also just general buyer awareness. Have you ha started to have? the the talks resume with the the bigger businesses who you know in your b2b uh revenue chain that would be incorporating okara flour into the production of their goods moving forward which i know you said was like a two to three year or development cycle we have yeah i think we have 
<laughs> the exciting thing with COVID is that I think it's propelled conscious consumerism. And so people have seen like, okay, actually like this does matter. Like we've seen the, what the happens when the food supply chain breaks down due to this kind of global disaster. We, we want our dollars to be going towards good things and we're, we're purchasing more plant-based products. We're purchasing healthier options. We want stuff that's going to help our immune system and all of those sorts of things are, are propelling this adoption of upcycling um, to, a, to a further degree. So we have seen those B2B customers kind of that put things on pause for say, maybe March through May now saying, okay, actually let's get back on this train. Let's, you know, let's move this forward. So we, we have been um, really lucky in that regard. Good. Going from pre-COVID to, to mid-COVID on this show is a hard transition. <laughs> it's much more fluid going to the post, post-COVID. But as we continue to uh, adapt to whatever this, I hate this phrase, but I use it more than anybody, new normal, what do you have to look forward to and what do you see maybe as the best case scenario specific to your business in the next three to six months? Our approach to e-commerce has still been a little bit spaghetti at the wall. Like there's so many platforms, you know, there's four new platforms I can think of at the top of my head that have launched since May, as far as getting, getting, how do we get products to consumers in unique ways? Um, so I think we're still testing out the waters of which of those is going to be the best to put our eggs in metaphorically, as far as getting the highest ROI on those sales. So we're going to, we're going to double down on that. We're still trying to, we are, because I, as I mentioned, we got into national distribution with one distributor. We are still trying to expand our retail footprint. So that's a, that's a dual strategy of just, we're, we're coming for yourselves, whether they're virtual or uh, brick and mortar. Um, and we hope we're going to be launching two additional cookie mix SKUs as well. Um, because we have seen with people at home baking that this just add oil and water concept is appealing because anybody can be a home baker. And now you have to be because all the restaurants are closed. Um, so again, yeah, again, again, California here, there we're yeah. dialing it back into, into lockdown. Um, so yeah, definitely that. And then we just launched a grain free torta called Via Lupita last week. Um, so we're, we're excited about ongoing partnerships with smaller brands that are still, still innovating. And, um, we are still hoping to hit one of those large food companies releasing a product, um, in early 2021 at this point. Okay, great. So that is still kind of happening. Was there a distinct pause button hit on that development or was it just future, was it a future uh, relationships that were that were uh, backing off. Uh, both and, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, definitely a distinct pause button. Everybody who we had been, you know, really progressing, paused for sure. Um, right. Some of them paused forever. Uh, they're like, "Yep, this is cut." We make decisions a year out, so they're developing products this spring that will go on shelves for spring of 2021. And they're like, "We don't have the brain space. We don't have the time. We don't have the energy to focus on this." So, sayonara. Um, but then we have seen other people who say, okay, like we can't even get into our R and D labs to do product development because we're all working from home. So we're pausing, but we will potentially pick this back up in a few months. And we are starting to see as people kind of have 
figured out how they can have one scientist in the lab at a time that that is coming back for a few people. And then we have all these other people that I was kind of just mentioning who are, they've seen, oh, like we need to be more efficient and we, we are looking for a new ingredient and wow, this is really cool. And they're kind of now coming out of the woodwork and saying, okay, as we start to think about our product development timeline for 2021 and 2022, how can we use these more innovative products? So definitely paused. So we lost some, some off the train, but we're, we're picking up some new folks as we, as we keep trucking. That's so interesting about how the R&D labs are, were literally closed and you require laboratories to figure out new ways to, uh, uh, to maintain social distancing just so that your products can be incorporated into a product that will eventually be coming out in, at this point, late 2021 or you know, maybe get into that R&D cycle for 2021 to get onto the shelf in 2022. The labs were closed and the co-packers were closed. So we often work with co-manufacturers to help them develop products. And our personal, like I didn't even mention this in the drop-off of the snack sales, but our co-manufacturer closed because of COVID. So we just had no product for three months for the cookie product too, so because they just weren't operational. Uh, and so they're also starting to open back up. Um, which has been been great, but we your hands are tied if you're the person who's actually producing your product. Is right, open. because yeah, I mean, this is something that I can definitely speak to. When you have a co-packer who can't fulfill your needs and you need to very quickly go find a new one, it's not like, oh, CVS is out of something, we'll just go to Walgreens. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is It is such a, such a longer process than that because not only do you need them to be able to physically produce your product, which means that they have all of the, the right equipment, but they need to have the certifications, they need to have the pricing and the minimums that make sense for you, where you are as, as an individual company. And again, we're not like Nestle, right? We're not going out there and going, hey, I need a million bazillion of these made. And they're like, yeah, no, no problem. It's eight cents per unit. No, when you go out there for a, looking for a co-packer for a specialty good, the the pricing could be from X to 5X depending on the minimums, right? And so if you want, okay, we just want a thousand of these made. Okay, great. Well, they're $2 a piece then just in labor. Okay, well, I'm trying to sell them for $2. So that's not really going to work for me, right? Okay, but if you get 100,000 of them made, then maybe it's only 25 cents a piece. Okay, well, great. But what what am I going to do with 100,000 cookies when I have nowhere to sell them right now? And so that is like the the huge timing question that is faced by new and kind of up and coming brands like ours uh, and, and is made that much more difficult when uh, something like COVID comes along. We also saw the packaging supply chain seriously disrupted. So we, you know, got into a new co-packer, which yay us. And then we were like, okay, we have all the ingredients here, but the packaging is now six weeks out. So you get into this cycle where it's like, we can't pay for production until we make a sale, but we can't make a sale until we have the product. And once we have the product on hand, we're now like, okay, we've, we've gotten a purchase order from this company, but we're not going to be able to deliver it for another four to six weeks because we're waiting on packaging that is severely behind. So it's this, it's a whole A cycle. lot of juggling. Yeah. yeah. A, a lot, a lot of juggling in a way that usually I feel like, you know, we, we juggle many hats that we have to wear as small business owners. And, and when you're dealing with a product that, 
has so many moving parts to it and is has been affected on so many different ways in in the in the uh in the on the just on the production side it just it's no wonder that uh you could have some sleepless nights every now and again it's been a sleepless spring for sure (laughs) sleepless spring yes title of our memoir (laughs) So as we come to an end here, as always, we want to make sure that our consumers know, or that our listeners, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm jumping the gun a little bit there, that our, our listeners about to turn consumers know exactly where to find your products. So uh, if listeners want to support you, if they want to try out Acara flour, uh, either in their own uh, baking at home, or they maybe want to start small, start simple, and have it in its finished good as a chocolate chip cookie, how do they do that? You can find us at RenewalMill.com or on any social media platform at RenewalMill. Um, you can also find us in Whole Foods in Northern California and on Amazon. I love it. Caroline, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you to my guest, Caroline Cotto. Check out her lineup of Okara products, including a Just Add Water and Oil brownie mix at RenewalMill.com. My unsponsor of the show is BetterWorldBooks.com. What if instead of helping make Jeff Bezos the world's first trillionaire, you helped fund literacy grants? Not only does Better World Books usually beat Amazon's price, but for every book purchased, Better World Books donates a book to someone in need. They also fund literacy and educational nonprofits and libraries seeking to reduce global poverty through education. I could go on and on, but this is just a really, really easy way to vote with your dollars for a more equitable and just world. So just buy your next book from betterworldbooks.com. And speaking of .coms, check out smallbizgoneviral.com for all episodes and updates. But more importantly, go there to tell me who I should interview next, what you like and loathe about this show. And I would be ever so grateful if you took 30 seconds to leave a five-star review. And more importantly, shared this episode with a friend. Or seven. Thank you to Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates for use of their song Geronimo and SoundBible.com for some sound effects trying something new. My website looks professional because of my sister Christina and her creative design agency, Pasty Design. All stats and stories today came from Worldometer.com, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Morning Brew, Robin Hood, Snacks, and NPR. Someday this will all be over. Until then, stay safe, stay distant, and wear a freaking mask. From my windowless office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and produced before and after work hours, this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back. We're with a quick bonus segment. This is our first of many bonus segments to come. Although, of course, let us know if you actually like this segment. But uh, we're going to do a quick two-minute rapid-fire series of questions for Caroline, starting with, what are some common misconceptions about your business? Go. Upcycled food must be free or cheap. Um, that why would people want to eat trash or food waste? <laughs> <laughs> and that being a female entrepreneur isn't that hard. Up next. What are the biggest upsides of entrepreneurship? Bonus points for something other than, quote, flexibility. (laughs) Uh, I feel like I'm getting an MBA in real time. I am now employing two, a Stanford and a Berkeley MBA this summer. Uh, But it's it's really allows me to wear every single hat in the business. And I get to see, see everything 
even the parts that I don't really want to see. <laughs> I hear you on that one. Okay, and uh, last but not least, what is your least favorite part about entrepreneurship? This is this is your time to vent. It's hella lonely. I worked by myself before COVID and now even more. Um, and I miss the opportunities to meet other fellow entrepreneurs. And I have to make all the decisions. So definitely fall into a lot of decision fatigue. Can't really pass it off to, to anyone else. Got it. Love it. And this time when we say goodbye, we, we mean it. Thanks, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs>